in to the Get Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Wilkie. Last week I did not have an episode because I will be quite honest with you. When you are running a one-way podcast and it's just myself coming up with a topic, sometimes it can be very difficult. I'm looking at my podcast as something that maybe people can come back in five years and, and use as help. It's not insanely or intensely relevant to the time. It's not really supposed to be super relevant to September 23rd, 2023. It is intended to be able to use be used at any point. And so, yeah, sometimes coming up with podcast ideas can be a little bit difficult. Sometimes I have ideas that are a little bit nuanced or that I couldn't get a full podcast out of, and I might end up making a, a full podcast out of ideas that, that float into my mind now and then that, you know, I could probably riff on for two minutes. I might do a bunch of those in one podcast coming up, but if you have podcast ideas, please reach out. JoeWilkieCounseling at gmail.com. If you are somebody who listens, I appreciate my listeners. Let me know, or you can reach out to us at focuspress.org. I'd be happy to get to any suggestion that somebody has if they want me to cover a topic that I have not previously covered. What I want to get into today is the idea of a day-to-day life of a porn addict. And I'm going to take it from what a porn addict's day is actually like, to a first recovering porn addict, like when you're first getting out of it, to maybe you've been out of it for 5-10 years. What does the day-to-day life look like for each of those? And I could very much go into specifics, and I actually, this is my second time recording this, because the first time I did kind of go into specifics of what it might look like when you're at work, things like that. It was a little too detailed. It was a little bit, uh, it's difficult for me to know exactly what your life looks like. I was going through my addiction when I was a kid, so I wasn't working a job. I don't really know what it's like to be in the, the throes of porn addiction while going to work every single day. I was in college at the time, you know, or I was I was in school when I was younger and I was homeschooled. So I was home a lot, a lot of triggers, things like that. But then I went to college and that's kind of where I figured it out. So by the time I entered the workforce, I had largely overcome the addiction and was not nearly in the same place as I was. It was not raging at the time. So it's really difficult for me to know exactly what it is. Now I've worked with dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds. At this point, I don't really know how many I've worked with, but I worked with a lot of guys enough to know what their day-to-day life looks like, but it goes something like this for the addict. And I'm assuming this is an addict who's trying to get out of it. Let me say that. There are addicts that give in constantly and really either don't feel the shame or the guilt or don't really care. I'm talking about the guy who's trying to get rid of it. Maybe the good Christian kid who's got it or, you know, the guy who is is got a great wife and kids and everything else, but, you know, his life is falling apart due to porn. Of course, their day-to-day life is going to look different, but their day-to-day is very much like being on a ship. It's being tossed here or there by the waves. You just don't know when it's going to hit. And when you don't know your triggers, you feel like you don't have any control. So you wake up in the morning. Maybe you're really wanting to act out. You don't really know why. But first thing in the morning is very difficult for you. Maybe you push through. Maybe you hit the gym. Maybe you you know, go get your bowl of cereal or just get ready for work or whatever it may be. You keep yourself busy because, man, I really want to do well today. Today is going to be a good day. You white knuckle change this thing. I told myself I'm not going to fall again. Therefore, I'm going to push through. Maybe noon comes along, lunchtime. If you're at work, some guys have a strict policy. I will not masturbate at work, which is very interesting to me that they can control it so well there, but then they allow all of the triggers at home. That's always been fascinating to me, but some guys, absolutely not. Sometimes lunch is an opportunity where you have your your lunch break or whatever else. Maybe you've been thinking about it. You've been allowing something in your mind. You didn't pay attention to how that, that look on your boss's face when he walked in the room, how that affected you. Now, subconsciously, you're really worried about your job. You think, wow, the boss is mad at me. 
and you're starting to feel rejected. You're starting to feel maybe a little bit worse about yourself and some self-loathing starts to creep in and you, this is all subconscious. You don't know. You didn't register any of those things, but next thing you know, you're really wanting to act out. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe you're a young kid and, and you know, you've, you're at school and a kid happens to say something or, or you're just starting to feel very anxious about something or stressed or maybe the other kids are, they're, they're over in a group and they're talking and you're not involved and you start to feel lonely. You start to feel abandoned a little bit. Maybe there's that rejection coming in. Whatever it is, next thing you know, you want to act out. So maybe you push through. Maybe both the, the guy at work or the kid at school, maybe they're pushing through. Then they get home. They, they go the rest of the day, try not to think about it, maybe some stray thoughts, maybe they're really starting to notice the girls around them, oof, man, that's tough, try not to look, try not to linger, bounce the eyes, they, they know the tactics, they get home, and this is where most addicts' days fall apart, it's unstructured, so when they get home, kid puts his backpack down, hopefully he's not a latchkey kid who has all the time in the world, because that can be very difficult as an addict, where you're combing through the TV, or using somebody else's device, or who knows what, but the guy who, who shows up, maybe his wife and kids are there, that's great. But he's got to go use the restroom. How long is he staying there? Does he take his phone in there? What's, what's the day been like? How stressed is he? And if he's allowed the stresses of the day and really allowed those thoughts to linger, it is all too easy to push the family to the side and to go engage in his addiction, to go masturbate. He comes out still smiling. Of course, he's got to put on that, that face and, and it, you know, whatever it is, or Sometimes he waits. Sometimes it's last thing at night. Sometimes he's trying to escape. Sometimes it's middle of the night where whenever he can escape the family and really let go of the day's woes, some of the day's stressors, all the problems of the day, he's going to go act out. And then he's going to hate himself. He's going to self-loathe. He's going to tell himself, I'm never going to do that again. And he's going to move on until the next day. In which case, he's on that rocking boat back and forth, never knowing when that wave's going to hit when all of a sudden he's going to get aroused, when all of a sudden he's really going to want it. This is how the addiction works. It is brutal. Every single day you are wondering what the day is going to be like. Am I going to get through? I'm really hoping that my libido just shuts off for the day and I really don't care and I really don't want it. Man, I've been there. I've prayed for God to basically just cut off my libido where I don't want anything, anything having to do with sex. Unfortunately, that's unrealistic. God's not going to do it because sex is a blessing from him and libido is a very good blessing from him when used appropriately. So that's the day, the average day in the life of an addict. Maybe for the kid, he gets home. Maybe he's not a latchkey kid. He say, says hi to mom and dad, but then he goes back to his, his room to do homework and he's alone for a long time. And the, the stresses of the day and some of the bullying taking place or cyberbullying or some things he sees online or whatever else may be triggering to him. Maybe his mom and dad are having fights and so... He, uh, you know, he runs from the fight into his room, and while they're so busy fighting amongst themselves, they don't pay attention to the fact that he's in his room on his computer masturbating. Doesn't matter that maybe the computer's even facing the door. He's not really too worried because he can hear him from the other room. Things like that really help contribute to the addiction. And maybe he waits until nighttime, whatever it is. Uh, we always find our ways. That's the thing as addicts. We always find our way to get it, almost always, we will, when we're jonesing hard enough for it, we'll do whatever it takes. Or, you know, we, we can still masturbate without finding porn. And a lot of times people can justify it. I wasn't actually looking at porn. Look, if you were thinking about porn and masturbating to it or thinking about fantasy visualizing certain things, that's, that's wrong too. That's lust. That's going down the same path. It's causing, it's coming from the same emotional wounds. But this is the struggle throughout the day. 
It's just very, very difficult to get traction. So when you're first getting sober, what does the day look like? How does it transition? Well, first thing in the morning, you wake up and maybe you journal. And yeah, you woke up a little bit earlier than, than you normally would, but maybe you journal. You get on your knees and you pray. You check your phone. You know, maybe you reach out to an accountability partner. Somebody said something the night before and you get back to them. And, and so you're talking to them. Maybe if you're a working guy, you jump on a 12-step call. Because you're really trying to get, you're, you're breaking free, man. You're doing whatever you can. You're trying to get rid of this. And so you jump on a 12-step call. Maybe that's from Samson Society or SAA or SA or, you know, a, a number of those. Celebrate recovery. And you're doing your 12-step work. Maybe that's partly what the journaling's been about. Your wife wakes up. You kiss her good morning. You're really trying to stay attuned to her. You show up at work. Same thing's happening. Boss walks in and you're having to remind yourself, man, don't, don't go there. Don't go there. You're okay. You know, so you... You basically rush out of the room at lunch, you call your sponsor and you let your sponsor know, hey, this is what's going on and I'm really wanting to act out right now. I'm really triggered. He talks you off the ledge. So then you go throughout the day, you're trying to remember some good good pieces of advice that, that you were given from him and you come home that day and, well, what do you do then? You can't really call your sponsor, you're around your wife, you're still kind of triggered, things like that. So then you tune to your wife, you really start listening to your wife and you start talking to her about the day and you start talking about, man, my boss walked in with this look on his face and, man, I'm scared to lose my job. And maybe she gives you some reassurance and she goes, they they love you around there. They know you're a really good employee and that's the boost that you need. That's what you got. You got a little bit of that boost. And so you're really heavily relying on others. Maybe you jump on an accountability call or you call a buddy from church, you call a buddy from work, whatever it is, and you're venting a little bit that night. Yeah, you've played with the kids a little bit, but now you're venting. When you're first going through the day, getting through every single day as a recovering addict, as somebody who's trying to break free, you have to rely on others. You don't have two legs to walk on, basically. They have to be your crutches. They have to be the people that you're reaching out to. This is why I I struggle with 12-step from time to time. But if that's what you need, if that's what's going to give you accountability, do it. When you're first breaking free, the day-to-day life looks a lot like somebody who's relying on others constantly. You've got to be open and honest with your spouse. You've got to be open and honest with your people at church, with your friends, with your co-workers. You've got to start living authentically and really starting to talk about the things that are bothering you. Where most addicts go wrong is they're trying to break free from the addiction, but they're not open on any other part of their life. They don't talk about their emotions. They don't talk about their day. They don't talk about what's bothering them. They don't talk about what's actually going on in their minds. But somehow they're going to talk about the addiction. It doesn't work that way. An open life is an open life. An intimate life of vulnerability and authenticity is a life lived that way. It's a lifestyle. You cannot just do that in your addiction and not in any other aspect of your life. And so when you're first breaking free... That's what it looks like is you're relying on others quite a bit. I push accountability more than anything because you don't have two legs to walk on, as I'm saying. You're trying to run a marathon. Your legs are broken. You're trying to fix all of the grooves, the pathways in your mind that are pushing you toward these triggers, the feelings of rejection, everything else. And I realize I didn't really touch on the kid aspect of the of things and what that might look like from a kid perspective, but a kid perspective would be talking with his parents, would be finding an accountability partner, somebody at church, somebody who might be able to help him. And maybe he's texting him throughout the day. Maybe he's joined a Discord server that, that is there to help other people. Or he's deleting apps from his phone. He's deleting Instagram. I think this is good for the adult too, but he's deleting Instagram. He's deleting Snapchat. He's deleting TikTok. The things that have really caused him to struggle. And yeah, he's isolated at school. 
He's isolated for a time because he's not part of the trends. He doesn't know everything going on. That can be really difficult. But when he's breaking free, he's willing to have difficult conversations with his parents and with other people in his life, and he's willing to not really care what other people think of him. That's what's going to have to change for a young kid to really break free. He's got to be accountable, and he's got to be different. So as you're going along in the addiction, yeah, maybe you're still doing 12-step. Maybe you're still, you got your accountability partners for sure. Maybe you start going to therapy and realizing that your triggers are really from trauma wounds. The reason why your boss saying that, it connected right back to your dad telling you something when you were young. He used to reject you too. He used to tell you something that was really, really mean. Or he used to have that look on his face. And every time your dad walked in the room, you'd wonder if he was mad at you. And so you always walked in eggshells around him. Next thing you know, wow, that's your boss. And your boss is triggering you because your boss is reminding you of your dad. And what did you do when you were young and your dad used to do it? You would, in fear, run to your room. And when you were in your room, you were lonely, you were fearful, you were scared. You didn't feel very worthy of love from your dad. You didn't feel connected to him. And so you acted out with porn. And you did that dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And 20 years later, guess what you're still doing? Doing the same thing. Your boss is your dad. I'm seeing this a lot. I'm seeing this a lot in therapy recently. Like the boss equals the dad. A lot of the time the coworkers or whatever can equal siblings, how your your relationship with them, but the boss can equal a parental figure so often and a lot of times a father. And this is why they can be so triggering. This is why your coworkers can be so triggering. Why people, why other people in your life can be so triggering is they represent other things such as your parents. Things to think about. These are just things to think about. But the guy who's trying to break free that maybe is, has been sober for six months, his day-to-day looks very, very similar, except he's got that therapy appointment at night. Or maybe squeezes it in first thing in the morning or over his lunch break. And he's doing that therapy homework. He's getting up in the morning and the journaling is, is therapy homework. He's talking to his wife about what he's learning in therapy. And he's checking in. He's doing Fanos with her, uh, which F-A-N-O-S. Feel free to Google that and print off uh, what you find or write it down because that's a fantastic check-in with your wife. So maybe that's what he's doing after he's six months sober. He's, he's doing these check-ins with his wife. His wife has been able to work through some of her stuff. She's been very wounded, very hurt, but she's starting to kind of get on his team, starting to help him in his recovery and seeing that she can be a teammate instead of the enemy uh, the way that he she feels she's been treated. Fast forward maybe five years, and what does the average day-to-day life look like for the guy who is sober? I think he still is very connected with groups. He's maybe, maybe he's not doing 12-step every single day. Maybe he's not you know, having to join a group morning and night. Maybe he's not checking in with his accountability partner or sponsor every single day. He still has that, though, and he's still probably checking in once or twice a week. And throughout the day, he gets up. He still has a routine. Look, when you slip out of the routine, and we've talked about this before on the importance of a morning routine, the day just goes downhill. So he still has a routine, still gets up, journals, prays, maybe meditates a little bit, maybe hits the gym. He's really bettering himself. He's bettering himself as a father, as a, as a husband, as a man, as an employee or an employer. He's doing those things that are really starting to help him because the focus is no longer solely on, I've got to get sober. Now we can learn to focus on other things in his life that need attention. You know what? I haven't been the best dad, and it's not just getting sober that makes me a good dad. I really need to attune myself to my kids. I need to be attuned to them. I need to, I need to figure out better ways to discipline them. I can't just yell at them all the time. So he starts reading parenting books. He starts watching videos on how to be a better parent or how to be a better husband. And he starts figuring out that the other ways of his life that he's no good, that he's really struggled with, you know, those things are important to fix too, not just getting sober. So the guy that is still 
sobriety is number one on his list five years later, I'm a little skeptical of. I don't think sobriety should stay on your list, on the top of your list for the rest of your life. Yeah, you you ought to be living a sober lifestyle, no doubt, but it has to be a lifestyle at that point that is second nature. I'm just living openly. And any time where I start to live closed, I figure out how to not. I figure out how to be open. And I move on from there, and I bring it into the light, and I continue my lifestyle of living openly, honestly, um, and, and authentically, right? Being vulnerable throughout my life. So... The guy that's been there for five years, he wakes up in the morning, same morning routine. He's eating healthy lunches, right? He's taking care of himself. He is not near as triggered when his boss or when somebody says something. He's calm because he's done enough work on himself to really figure that out and to say, man, that's not me. That's not me. They are, and maybe he's done some IFS work and he can separate, I could separate business Joe from personal Joe or whatever it may be that's going to help them. They work on those aspects of their lives to where that addict, that former addict, I would say, man, he's having a good time. He calls his wife over lunch. Things are okay. He's letting her, he's checking in, just telling her how much he loves her. And then he gets home, and then he loves spending family time. And maybe he jumps on a call with a fellow guy, but at this point, he's able to give back. At this point, he's a sponsee, um, or, or whatever it is, right? He's, he's a sponsor, rather, and he's got his sponsees, the people that he's overseeing, and really helping them. And he's now a wealth of information because he has been reading the books. He's been through the program. He's done all his work. He's done his 12 steps. He's able to give back. And so he hops on a call and he helps a brother who's in need. He helps an accountability group guy. And now maybe he's a senior member of the accountability group. Maybe he runs the accountability group. And he's starting to give back. And so he jumps on that call at night. And he's reminded, while this guy's talking about the crisis that he's in, he's reminded of, wow, that was me. The guy that's in crisis, that was me, and I don't miss that one bit because I'm going to go to bed with my wife. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to go to bed and be happy with my relationship with God, and I don't have to worry about these things. So that's the life, I would say, the day-to-day life progression of what takes place. I've touched on a lot of these things before, so a lot of this isn't new, but I thought, you know what, maybe it would help for people to understand the day-to-day progression. You go from being on that boat on waves Every single day, you're wondering what wave is going to hit, when it's going to hit. You just have no idea. You're kind of in the bottom of the boat, just getting smacked around because you're clueless as to your triggers. You're clueless as to how to structure your day and when that trigger is going to hit, when you're going to be aroused and how you're going to act out and how you're going to get around all the accountability software and all of those things. And you end up being a man of God, a fantastic man who is taking care of his family, who's really working on himself. In so many ways, you're on solid footing, solid ground, and really building something cool. That's the progression from being completely addicted to working out of that. So I hope this has helped. Uh, I know it's a bit of a longer one. I hope this has helped. Again, if you have ideas as to what you would like me to hit on, please let me know. I would love to. Uh, I'd love to hit on any of those. And otherwise, can't guarantee this is going to continue to be a weekly podcast. It hasn't been for the last few weeks, just because. It has. I have to wait for something to hit me, some idea to hit me, and then when it does, okay, great, I'll, we'll roll with it. So anyway, uh, we're going to go from there, but I uh, appreciate you listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.